0: Hey, what's going on? This is Menle Golikai Agri. And this is Lauren Yoshiko, and you're listening to Broccoli Talk. Today's episode is all about self-identity and self-care and poetry because Menle talked with the incredible Faria Roy Sheen And she's a writer, podcaster, and author whose work touches on Muslim identity, race, sort of self-care, pop culture, and her queerness and how it intersects being a femme of color in a white world. My relationship with poetry was so stunted before I found an author that actually was a woman of color that I I started to kind of resonate with more than like William Shakespeare and the traditional uh, male introduction to the idea of poetry for everybody in school.
1: I so feel you on that one.
0: When did you start uh, appreciating kind of less traditional writings?
1: I don't think it was until at least I felt grown and sexy. And I would go to like little readings in Brooklyn and sometimes in the Bay Area. I think only then you really you're able to like listen to the poet, read their poetry, but then also you get to like purchase the
0: book, right? That's really cool that your exposure was in person like that. That would have totally changed my impression as well, getting to hear the people who wrote it get to deliver the poem in the way in which they hear it. Well, before we listen to this awesome conversation, I wanted to ask you what you were up to this week because I saw something on Instagram you were, was it a demonstration of or a protest of some kind in Mexico City? There were some
1: demonstrators and activists who planted about 15 cannabis plants in this area of downtown Mexico City called um, Angel de la Independencia. And it's basically like the angel of independence. So there was sort of a demonstration where they took these plants to Senate. And had a chance to talk to some people within the Senate to see what they could personally do for passing bills of legalization here in Mexico. So that was pretty powerful. I mean, it had a it was an interesting vibe, you know, very, very like 420 on the Hill vibes. (laughs) Everyone's just like smoking weed and like looking at each other like uncomfortably, but also really, you know, excited um, for the opportunity to do that and demonstrate that. And that was that was pretty powerful. And that was that was important. How have you been? How are you feeling? How are things sort of shifting?
0: Things are good. I am excited to celebrate this new magazine coming out tonight. There's this uh, new issue, well, first issue of June magazine. There's an article in there about broccoli, and it's written by Tina Snowley, who is also from Portland. And she has a really cool side project of her own that is in the weed space called Earth to Her, definitely recommend looking it up it includes the most beautiful joint rolling tutorial that has ever existed right now though i just want to light up a little joint and get ready to listen to your amazing conversation
1: yes pass that joint over to me let's get it
2: i'm Faria rosheen and i'm a writer And I love Broccoli Magazine. (laughs) I'm so corny.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Corny is good. I feel like corny is very good. I'll just get into it. I feel like you've been having a massive year. You know, you've published two books, How to Cure a Ghost and Being in Your Body, um, sort of like a guided journal for self-love and body positivity. But I I just want to know, like, how are they going? That's kind of what I've been dying to find out.
2: It really took a lot for me to put this work out there. You know, coming out of a relationship, coming into a relationship, being alone, Um, struggling with my mom, struggling with depression. But then it really is, I think, as much as it explores themes of trauma, it is about eventually healing that trauma. And so before I went on tour, I had to face myself in a way that I don't think I've ever really faced myself before. And yeah, nobody talks about how you have to really like, step into yourself um, and transform especially if you do want people to read your work and like buy your book and you know you have to do so much spiritual work to prepare for that and so I would have to put my weaknesses to the side and that was something that I really struggled with, but I feel so happy to be on the other side of.
1: You've called How to Cure a Ghosts like a book for survivors, right? Like I think a lot of us and a lot of people who have interviewed you have quoted that, you know, you've said that the ghost is a colonization, it's my mother, it's white supremacy, abuse, ancestral trauma. Obviously, like you just said, it's coming from a place of healing and there's just so many different methods and forms and ways of doing that. But, you know, do you think This is probably an obvious question for the people listening. Like, do you think weed or cannabis plays a role in that
2: healing and plays a
1: role in in that survival?
2: That's why I love your work. I think that I'm so drawn to people who are thinking about not only weed, but psychedelics in a more expansive way. I'm about to go on an ayahuasca retreat. It is sort of this uh, amazing supplement to coming back to yourself or to understanding who you are. Um, in a more complex way, I write a lot while I'm high. I actually love writing and editing while I'm high. So I'll do I'll either write while I'm high and then edit sober, or write while I'm sober and edit high. I kind of like like playing around with that because I think that it is. I mean, as you would know, there's so many taboos about weed still, and it's so fun to not let anyone determine or dictate how I consume this. This amazing plant. There are a lot of problems with weed, of course, in terms of just like how, you know, the legislation around it, especially in the U.S., the toll that it's taken on black and brown lives and and all of those things that we should be talking about. And that's something that I try and be very sort of conscious of as I'm consuming, um, because I think ethically consuming weed is a really, really important part of consuming weed. <laughs> you know, like we can't have one without the other. And many of us do, but I think it's really time for us to start, you know, having these conversations of like, well, what's the future? But at the same time from for myself, the ways in which I kind of explore that is I try and have a lot of transparency with my relationship with weed. And so, I mean, for a couple of years now, it sort of started off as a joke, like how much of a stoner I was. And now I I think it's actually like really been quite powerful to be like, Yeah, this is who I am. And actually, like, there are so many restrictions and so many taboos around how we talk about this thing. Especially, I mean, I come from a Muslim family, like, it's not like something that, you know, like, I was ever exposed to, with regards to, like, my parents smoking weed, or, you know, anyone in my family. But it has helped me alleviate so much of my own qualms about not only, like, how I feel about myself, but how I feel about my spirit body and how I feel about my mind. Like, it's helped me aid so many of those things, and I think that it's it, It's just so powerful to talk about
1: dealing with with certain aspects of healing, um, whether spiritual or physical, kind of always go back to the body, right? And you, I think, are very potent when you talk about body image battles, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean that the person dealing with these issues thinks they're ugly, or rather, you know, they they know that they're beautiful, but I think these sentiments sort of speak more to the actual weight of lifting, you know, brown and black bodies' oppression. Like, just because you know you're brilliant and hot and tender doesn't mean that you can like ignore the systematic culture that tells you that you're not. I kind of wanted to dig into that because I know you have so much wisdom and so much to say on it.
2: It is such a confusing experience for people to fully digest how much white supremacy has affected the ways in which we interact with our bodies. I mean I grew up in Australia. I grew up around mainly white people and the norm and the beauty norm was like everything that was oppositional to my body. You know, I'm, I'm 5'2", I'm curvy, I'm Muslim in a post-9-11 world growing up, and all of the factors that play into that, in and especially in Australia, where when I was growing up in the 90s, it was, you know, brownness was just, I mean, it still is something that I'm trying to fill in the gaps for people because there isn't a lot of transparency about what it means to be a brown person living in this world and there are so many different experiences of that and especially because like colorism plays into your experience as a brown person religion plays into your experience as a brown person um caste, like all of these things that we don't necessarily have language for in the west there's so much that i think through my writing at least i'm trying to like educate not only myself but other people and also give a voice for something that i think for too long has been misunderstood and just placated i think a lot of brown people don't understand that they have fed into white supremacy or that they have white supremacist standards you know like i grew up you know my parents would give me skin lightening cream like you know there were my dad's a marxist and he's smart and and yet like these were the kind of standards i was given and you know the classic like don't go out into the sun too much like all of these things that when you get older and you start understanding or you start cracking open this idea that okay like i remember a couple of years ago was the first time i kind of looked at myself and i was just like i don't think i'm ugly (laughs) I'm like, I don't think I'm ugly. But why do I feel so terrible about myself, you know, and in order for us to evolve and move forward, we really need to first acknowledge that we've all been fed this poison so we can actually heal from it. And that's definitely what I think my role is in this lifetime and also what I really think my primary, the primary focus of my work is. It's really about challenging these ideas in order to move forward. I don't necessarily think that it's always helpful to just linger on the feeling or the pain or the trauma as much as I do think it's important to first say it and name it, but then... Yeah, I'm really starting to think about or really trying to orient my work in terms of how do we start thinking about how to heal and how do we start thinking about how to create better tools for us to heal.
1: A part of this healing and a part of sort of witnessing your healing makes me think of this beautiful utopia, right? And it's like almost perfect because one of my favorite poems that you wrote is um, called Utopia, right? And I'll just quickly read it is a soft declarative wind that is warm like a lark singing sweet hymns in the summer it's just so good and I it brings me sort of to this like visual place um but I want to hear like what that visual place is like because I feel like you are the embodiment of that in a sense right you're thinking of all of these elements that are very crucial in this world in this modern futuristic world that we live in like what's your vision of utopia is is cannabis there are psychedelics there like who's (laughs) who's there (laughs)
2: Cannabis is definitely there. <laughs> so are second- I mean, I think we are returning to our indigenous roots. You know, and, and indigeneity is 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 in everything. You know, and 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 I think that that's definitely a form of utopia, and is in the utopia that I see more than anything. I want us to be free, and I think. That's really sort of the reason I wrote that poem. And even hearing you say the first few lines made me kind of emotional. I still, I was like reading my book earlier today and crying. I was like, damn. Oh, wow. But I I think that for me, utopia is everyone being free, everyone being good to one another. I think kindness is so underrated and it's actually such a vital thing for us. But in this next couple of years and especially in our evolution as a species, I do think it's pivotal for us to start, you know, like, reorienting ourselves to be kind to one another and to see our differences as strengths and to see our differences as powerful and not use those differences to demonize or make small or create these divisions that are not fair. I am a very justice oriented person. And I think that that's why I am so concerned about, you know, we need to start talking about these things and like creating like legislative change and societal change. It's not just about oh, you know, it's, it, we just have to love it. Yeah, like totally, but um, we have to understand that we live in a white supremacist state first. And then we can, and from that, we can then begin to actually uh, address the wounds that have hurt so many people.
0: Ladies of Paradise is a Portland-based, all-female creative agency specializing in the cannabis industry. They recently launched Lady J's Pre-Roll Packs, working with Marshall Farming, a sustainable hemp farming community in Ashland, Oregon. The packs are super cute, but to get a little sciency, some of their pre-roll packs are made with CBG, another interesting cannabinoid that won't get you conventionally high. Like CBD, it's daytime friendly, and you're probably going to start hearing a lot more about it. I had the chance to try the CBG variety of Lady J's, and I was surprised by the euphoric effects I experienced. Follow on Instagram at ladiesofparadise and online at ladiesofparadise.com to see all of the creativity coming from this fun group of women.
1: You know, all of your writing is is beautiful, in my opinion, you know, from cover to cover, all the articles. Um, But what I found was that your acknowledgments um, in your book of poetry was really impactful. And I'm quoting, you know, to my ancestors, thank you for not letting me hide, even though I wanted to so many times. That was huge. That was like, I'm even kind of tearing up a little bit now. You know, I think it just speaks so loudly. And it's so powerful. To a lot of people, you know, in this time of ancestral healing, talk to me about your ancestors and, and who you are. Do you, I mean, who they are. Do you have visions of them? Do you, um, you know, have ceremonies for them, altars? What's, what's that relationship like?
2: As a child, I was quite psychic and I would get visions and like, I, I very vividly remember my grandfather being in the backyard as soon as I found out that he was dead and I could see his ghost. And and he was, he died in Bangladesh on, on his bed. Like there was no way that, but I, I I know that I saw him and I know that he was speaking to me. And I mean, my ancestors, yeah, have come to me a lot. And I think that they're it's gonna be interesting to do ayahuasca, like this, like really, like deep, deep trauma ayahuasca retreat soon, um, because they're probably gonna really, really, really come to me then. I mean, I think that we're all beginning this, or not all of us, but many of us are beginning these explorations of self and understanding that we are not who we are without them. And I am such a reflection of my ancestors I mean my I'm like four generation socialist like it goes back really really deep in my family and like my mother's father was a socialist member of parliament in India then Pakistan and then Bangladesh because of partition and and then because of the liberation war and so he was a member of parliament and like part of the socialist party of these three different countries and such a figurehead in that sense and then was a human rights lawyer. And and when I was younger, I deeply, deeply believed I was going to be a human rights lawyer. And I think when I decided to write, it was very much a decision made because I didn't think that being a lawyer or being a human rights lawyer especially would actually make me create any effective change. I knew that I could only do it with writing. And I don't understand how I knew that. I just knew that I knew that. When I look at my ancestors, I, I remember that I am just a, a reflection of them, and I am just carrying on the work that they did. Um, that's why it, it's actually so important for me to not hide And again, why I probably feel so purposeful because it is in my blood to fight for justice and to fight for a better world. I mean, that was something that with my grandfather, like it was always the kind of legacy that was said when he was brought up. You know, this understanding that this man didn't really want anything necessarily good for himself, but only wanted it for other people. And there is this generosity of spirit that I think has carried on to me where I am very vigilant about fighting for other people even more so than I am about fighting for myself sometimes and so now I'm almost like going back and being like oh shit I have to start looking after myself and like fighting for myself too and they are so present and I'm actually looking forward to the process of getting to know them more and getting to heal with them more and you know I did start an altar this year but all of it's just like a learning curve and, and also seeing like what feels right. You know, I I think it has been like an unfolding of like what feels good for them. And I, I don't have all the answers yet, but I am in this state of exploring that.
1: You've talked about queerness in Islam. And I know that you identify as a brown, femme, queer Muslim, and I want you to talk to me about, like, your knowledge of the historical context of queerness in Islam and, like, how that works with your family and with other Muslims and, and sort of how this
2: has manifested Again, I think it's like a continuous conversation and exploration. Um, I do know that queerness was so, so um, apparent in Islam and a lot of like homophobia was introduced by the West and was introduced by like this puritanical Christian ideology. Um, and that's something that's really shocking to people because we think of Muslims as like these like like radical whatever, but that's such a modern modern idea of islam and it's really sort of like post-american intervention like you can track it it's not it's again it's people's amnesia is is apparent but there is so much literature and so much art about um queerness and especially in the 14th century in the 15th century in this like very um golden age of islam Around that time, Muslims, a lot of Muslim intellectuals were... The reason why we know Plato or Aristotle, for example, is because all of that was being translated from Greek into Arabic. And it was later translated from Arabic into English. And that's why we actually have them, because they were all lost. And so we owe the knowledge of them to actually Muslim intellectuals back in the day. And so because of that teaching and that understanding, there was like a very homoerotic society, especially amongst intellectuals, because it was considered to be sort of more refined and like culturally, like actually um, almost revered to have like a male, a young male twink lover, you know, for example. Um, and I mean, again, like always sort of like, more lesbian literature is, like, lost, obviously, just because people don't care about women. And and so that's not as common or known. But um, there are a lot of writers that have explored it. I mean, a lot of people talk about Rumi as if, you know, he was gay. And so... There is a lot of conversations about, like, queerness in Islam that I think I've I've gained a lot of just understanding of my own self because I don't think that we exist in this – we don't exist in a black and white ever, and – I'm always about nuance, I'm always about exploring the in-between, and and that's why, like, I do look back upon my own religious history with such care and love, because there was a time where Muslims were, like, contributing so much to the West, and, I mean, there's poetry, there's, like, so many poems throughout the book about that, you know, the thing, you know, from coffee to algebra to modern mathematics to, you know, even the removal of cataracts, like, all of these things were Muslim inventions, and we just do not talk about... About how this um this culture this faith was obliterated for a very intense reason right or like when we think about American history when we think about slavery I mean a lot I think like one third of the slaves brought over were Muslim and so you know there is that that's another thing that I think is really curious to think about like not only how deep the Muslim Muslim history in America is but how much like like why it would be quashed i mean there's so many different reasons and and why it might be seen as a threat you know and it is sort of at least in this country i think tied to anti-blackness which is ironic because a lot of muslims now are anti-black so like that's a it's like a whole other like cycle of just like just we just haven't exposed any of these things yet and that's why like talking about them is just so cathartic because in talking about it at least where there is like this exhalation of the truth where you're like oh finally i can actually talk about this with somebody um and hopefully that just encourages other people to do their own research and their own work and to to sort of like confront themselves and confront the feelings that they might have about themselves i get a lot of letters and and, um, emails and questions about queerness from young Muslims who are scared to explore their queerness. And so I think that, you know, the more we talk about it, yeah, the more like we create a culture of acceptance and love around it, which is the goal.
1: I read a quote of yours, I think an ID or something like that, and it really resonated. You said that women seeing me has always meant more to me than men seeing me. And I think oftentimes, you know, people will say that women dress for each other and it's more about, like, this learned competitiveness and et cetera, but it seems that maybe it's just more out of love, like... Queer femme love is very important and it's very impactful and we're seeing that pop up. But what does that mean to you and like how has that shaped your existence or how are you, you know, like you said, sort of being able to create that space for um, people who come and ask you and, you know, are looking up to you in terms of that?
2: I am really curious to start thinking about how do we unlearn as a society what it means to not perpetuate misogyny? Because I see this online all the time, where people are like pretty smart individuals. They're probably thinking very proactively about um, race or, you know, like sexuality. And yet when it comes to women, they cannot fully comprehend what it means to exist as a woman and to love other women like fully, not just when you're in a sexual relationship with them or whatever, you know, what does it mean to actually fight for the end of patriarchy? It's not just like, we love women and then you talk shit about them, you know, like, you know, it's just, that's just not what it looks like for me and it's not something that I want to participate in. And I mean, across the board, and I'm talking black, brown, queer, straight, trans, binary, like, we have all done this, and I see this all the time, and it's just not good. It's not good, and we need to move forward, and that's, like, something that I really, really want 2020 to be about, you know, like, this year of me very actively thinking about how to unlearn misogyny and making work Around that. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of a roundabout way of saying, like, we have to begin to explore that in ourselves in order to love it in somebody else. And that's why I think a lot of this work is about just coming to yourself and loving whatever it is that you have and understanding that if you don't love it it is just a projection of this world of this capitalistic world that doesn't want you to love yourself that actually profits off of you not loving yourself and so it is an act of radicality to be like no whatever it is whatever i am i accept it and not only that i i am in love with it and i am uh, loving of it and That might not be true every day, and I know that it's a pretty wild thing to feel at all times, but I do think, again, that it's possible. And if, as a society, we, as women, as femmes, we began to sort of do this work more actively, then we could actually, again, like, start evolving. And that, again, is the goal.
1: I'm all about this 2020 vision that you have. (laughs) (laughs) All about it. Seeing things clearly. Yes. Seeing things clearly. Um, no, but tell me about what we can expect in 2020 from you and what, you know, where can we find you? Where can we follow you? Where can we, help in a healthy way, sort of stalk you and, oh, no. and cheer for you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, my book, uh, Like a Bird, comes out on September 18th, 2020, I believe. Um, it is a novel about a young biracial Indian girl who is... Um, being raped by her family friend, um, and then disowned by her family. And it's a story of survival again, because I do think that survivor stories are so important. And I also wanted to explore what it means to have rage, and like what it means to be rageful. And yeah, this is the book I had a dream of when I was 12. So it's pretty pretty absurd that I have this dream at 12 but it's also like well yeah it's sort of like you know I think anyone that knows me and even though we're new friends I'm sure you understand you seem to see me more clearly than most people you know like I think that it's it is definitely like yeah it's it's part of my purpose um and then I really want to Um, I consider myself a multidisciplinary artist as opposed to just a writer. And so this year I'm working on an art show of my paintings, but I'm also working on a video series that I will be directing about jealousy. I'm really excited. Um, And there's just going to be sort of short form videos about what it means to be jealous. And I'm really excited about that.
1: Where can we find you on the interwebs? Because you know we will.
2: Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram at Faria underscore Roisin, And then uh, on Twitter, it's f- at Faria Roisin. Yeah, Instagram is probably the best way to contact or see my work. And then pre-ordering like a bird when I send out that pre-order link on my Instagram would be amazing.
1: It's been such a charms pleasure to, to talk with you. I really appreciate having you in and, and- Letting us, like, um, you know, take a little window into, into your life. And um, it's been lovely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. And last words, smoke weed, kids.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm just going to press stop and okay. pause on that one.
2: <laughs> okay, amazing. I was like, I need to say this.
1: <laughs> this episode was produced by Anya Charbonneau. Our music is by Giselle Garcia and our logo design is by Jennifer Wright. Learn more about broccoli and subscribe to the magazine at broccolimag.com. If you're into the show, don't hesitate to rate and review so more cannabis lovers can find us. We appreciate you.